You're listening to The Leader's Table, a podcast by Leadership for Educational Equity. Good morning, Cindy. Well, good morning to you too, Taylor. And hello to all of our civic leaders out there listening. Yes, hello, listeners. Well, Cindy, I feel like you've probably got something good for us all today. I do. How did you know? In today's discussion at the leader's table, Jason sits down with Dr. Wes Bellamy from Charlottesville, Virginia, to discuss his remarkable leadership journey and how he is only the seventh Black person and the youngest in Charlottesville's history to be elected to city council. How old was he? 29. Wow, that's a huge accomplishment. I'm excited to hear how he did it. Well, then let's get this interview started. Pull up a seat, everyone. Here's Jason Lorenz at the Leaders Table with Dr. Wes Bellamy. Dr. Bellamy, welcome to the Leaders Table. Thank you so much for having me. Honored to be here. We're really honored to have you. I've wanted to talk with you since 2017 when Charlottesville drew the attention of the world for for its its public exposition of the battle between white supremacy equity and inclusion. I'm really glad to, to talk with you today, learn about your leadership path and just how you're thinking about these questions of equity and justice uh, today. Thank you, looking forward to it. So where did you grow up? What, what formed Dr. West Bellamy into the public leader that you are for all of us today? That's a good question. Um, so all of my family is from Atlantic Beach, South Carolina. I was born uh, there, but I actually grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. So I had a very um, interesting childhood while we didn't have the most at all times. And um, we lived in somewhat hectic neighborhoods. Uh, I always grew up with a sense of pride. Uh, I always grew up with a sense of making sure that uh, take care of my community. Um, I, I grew up in, in Atlantic Beach is the one of the only black owned beaches in the United States of America. And I think it's like the second or third that was ever founded on the entire East Coast. And then growing up in Atlanta, so my family being from there and then my, my grandmother's house kind of being the house, the neighborhood house where everybody always came to. And no matter who you were, you could always sleep on her, her floor or on her couch. So there was a sense of community and neighborhood there. And then growing up in Atlanta, uh, while my father wasn't with me, I was always blessed to have different men in my life to, to kind of show me different things and help me to understand the importance of not only giving back to my community. And uh, again, while, while our neighborhood may not have been the best, uh, I've been being told that I was special ever since I was maybe four or five years old. And at some point, you just start to believe it. Now, you talk a lot about mentorship. It seems like really central to, to how you lead and, and, and even oh, yeah. your, your legislative agenda. I think back to your equity uh, your equity agenda for Charlottesville, mm-hmm. and it was about mentorship. Is mm-hmm. that what, what drove that? It makes all the difference. I mean, again, I, I know the impact that mentors had on me growing up. And I think that with a good mentor, it allows you to be able to circumvent and slice through some of the negativity that may be going on around you. And it allows you to be able to look to push for something in the future. It that You also have people when you have good mentors or even some people who others may identify as negative mentors, but when you have people as a whole who are showing you an example, whether it's good or bad, it allows you the opportunity to choose your own path of how you want to go for your life. And I know for me personally, that was a big help. Yeah. Who's the most important mentor? Oh, 
the most important mentor, uh, God. But I would say uh, I can't pick one. There's a culmination of different people. Some who were incarcerated, some uh, my pastor, my uncle who was a pastor. So my family is really uh, my family. The family dynamic is is um, interesting. On my mother's side of the family, there's probably it's a very religious family. Probably seven or eight pastors in the family. Uh, everyone goes to church. My father's side of the family is a little different. Uh, it's a group of hustlers and people who just just do a, a lot of different things. Um, so I, I have mentors on both sides and, and community people. So I can't just pick one. I mean, I was I was talking about this on Instagram the other day. I, I really looked up to Nino Brown from New Jack City. Like I really do the type of giveaways every year based off of seeing Nino doing that. I saw Nino give those kids money in New Jack City and, and talking to them about making good decisions. And I was like, I'm going to do that when I get older. And I saw people in real life who, who may, in the eyes of some, be bad people because of some of the decisions that they made. But in my in my eyes and just from my understanding of community, they, they did a lot to make sure that our community and the young folks in our community uh, didn't go without. So, again, man, there's several people who I can name. There's definitely no West without without mentors and community as a whole. So you mentioned politics and social media. Um, I think when I think of you, I think about public politics, public leadership and a deep commitment to social media. What is it that you wish that everyone understood about social media and this generation of leaders coming up behind you um, and how to use those platforms to inspire? It's an amplifier unlike any other. And I think that we have the opportunity to show a wide variety of things. One, through social media, you can see someone's growth. So I look at an individual like myself. I mean, you look and it's been well documented. You look at my tweets from 2009, 10, 11. I was saying while I was in college, I was 20, 21, 22 years old. My friends and I were saying some of the most homophobic, disrespectful things that you can think of offer laughs because we thought that was funny and that was the end thing to do 2009 2010 2011 and then uh people always ask me well, why don't you delete your tweets even when they came back to, to quote unquote hurt me a little bit and i said I, I won't delete them because i want people to see my growth i'm not a perfect person and i want you to see how i act or how i used to act when i was 20 or 21 and i want you to see if you just follow my timeline and you, you'll see the evolution of a person who's grown and mature to an individual at 33 who's a father of four and four daughters and a husband and a community leader and so forth. And I think that we we need there's, a again, the ability to amplify your message on social media. There's the ability to show the growth of an individual. But unlike anything else, social media allows us to mobilize and galvanize people in a way that can really change the landscape of our communities and our nation as a whole. We've seen it with all of the protests that have taken place across the country on simultaneous days. We've seen it with people uh, having initiatives that, that can go worldwide, for that matter, based off of a tweet or a post. And I think with that tool, it's powerful and you can use it for good, you can use it for bad. But the more that we collectively connect with those who are like-minded, who want to push for change, we'll continue to see change. You were elected to the Charlottesville City Council in 2015. By 2017, the world was looking at Charlottesville and at you personally mm -hmm. uh, for, for exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Young tweets, tweets that were uh, didn't reflect who you became as you as you described. What drives the change from young men in college 
sharing what seemed to be funny at that time to leader of a community advancing an equity agenda, owning, owning, you know, the, the tweets of youth and calling us, us and yourself to something bigger. How do you how do you get there as a leader? Well, I think our, the city of Charlottesville really helped me grow up as a human being. Um, and I think also we have to allow people the ability to grow. Like there's a level of grace that is shown that was shown to me by my city specifically and people who have seen me, who have helped mentor me, who have helped me understand that the world is a lot bigger than what I thought it was at 21, 22. And I think that for that reason, my community and my city stood behind me in some very difficult and challenging time. And I thought I knew everything about everything. And really, there's only something about life that can teach you how much you have to learn. I know specifically I've, I've become a, or tried to become rather a staunch advocate for the LGBTQ AI plus community. And I think I, I was able to grow based off of some friends that I uh, developed here in Charlottesville who were the leaders of the Pride Network. And I mean, these these ladies, shout out to Lisa and Amy Sarah and the, these ladies who are a gay married couple these two white ladies who would be, you would think, the exact opposite of me. And they taught me more, not only about just LGBTQ plus issues, but also that, Wes, like how you see the world isn't the only way that it is. There are a lot of people who will want to support you, who will want to support your cause and your initiatives, and they don't have to look like you or have the exact same philosoph- excuse me, uh, philosophy or ideology as you to ride for you and stand with you. And again, I think that's a that's a, a maturation process that a lot of people go through. Unfortunately, I have I've been going through it publicly, but I wouldn't change anything about it. And, I, and I'm just very, very fortunate and blessed to live in a community. I've, I always say Charlottesville is the greatest place to live in the world because we're a community that for me, even with all of our issues and, and the negative things that we're trying to fix, um, this is a community that personally I saw stand with me in my darkest moments and rally around a young guy who was trying to figure it out and they helped me figure it out. And without them, I wouldn't be who I am right now. Mm. I've heard you say exactly that in so many places, literally in your darkest hours, Charlottesville was there for you, uh, that we take care of each other. It's one of those things I wanted to bring back here and I'm so glad you you said it. Mm -hmm. Your orientation around openness and learning and seeing the connection is also, I've also seen you say in in really hard times. So in 2017, you were interviewed about uh, the the equity agenda you were advancing in the Charlottesville City Council. You were a sitting elected city council member, sitting vice mayor of Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. And you said, look, when fellow council members disagree with me, it's not racism, but people have different approaches to equity. Everyone believes in equity and people have different ways of getting there. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I think that uh, we don't, so so during that time, I was the only black person on the city council. I'm the youngest person ever elected and, and only the seventh black person in our 260 some odd year history to be elected to city council. And here's this young guy trying to push a very progressive and bold equity package through nearly four and a half million dollars to resources to underserved communities. Uh, and I, while simultaneously saying we're going to move these statues, and I think it was a bit much for not only my counselor, my fellow council members, but the city as a whole. I mean, 
people were just like, yo, what? Like, Wes, this is this is just too much. You're going too fast. You always want to go too fast. And again, it, it wasn't necessarily in my personal opinion that my all my colleagues were racist because they didn't understand it initially. It was just that people come to their own in different times. And that doesn't make them bad people. It just means that I may need to be a little more patient. Walk me through the, the pathway from idea. We need a piece of legislation that mm-hmm. said Charlottesville is pro-equity. Mm-hmm. And I want that to include economic equity, a position in schools that's talking about uh, equitable treatment. What's, what's that pathway? What, mm-hmm. what, what does that look like? So I think there is power in being young and not knowing any better especially when you're in certain positions. So for me, and people in Charlottesville will tell you, you know, West, West goes really fast with everything. And, and there's, there's this running joke around the city now how people think that I'm so different because I, I normally take my time and let's think about all of these things first. Back then, I'm just like, hey, this is ideal. Let's go. Let's go do it. Um, so there's, there's power, I think, in having that philosophy sometime, you know, having the youth and, and just your boldness and being unafraid. I remember distinctively when we first started talking about moving the statues and I was getting a lot of the the pushback um, for whatever reason and in praise in some regards as well. And I remember my colleagues on council saying, as well as some folks around the community saying, moving those statues won't change anything. We need to do something substantive. Oh, okay, so if you move those statues, will, will my neighborhood get any better? Will education disparities stop? Will housing, uh, public housing get any better? So on and so forth. And I remember thinking, okay, so if people want substantive items and we have to figure out how we can deliver that while also still pushing for the statues. And I was uh, just just researching the budget one day and I was thinking, okay, if we took a little bit off of this, we took a little bit off of that, we took a little bit off of this, what would it look like to bring these things to fruition? I spend a lot of time in our public housing sites. I spend a lot of time jogging, hanging out. And obviously, this was also before I was married. So, you know, I, I just had a lot of time to just to just really be out in the streets, be out in the community, just get get to know people. I was always accessible. I'm driving people. I'm the vice mayor, but I'm driving people to job interviews. Like, I, whatever it is, like people just know you're going to see what's out. And the equity package came from items that I consistently heard from people, things that they needed different. So we were trying to get this GED training in the neighborhoods and people were saying, you know, Wes, I, I want to get my GED, but damn, did you know that you have to pay to take the GED? And I'm like, what? That's ridiculous. Okay, well, let's see if the city can help with that. $50,000 for anybody who wants to take the GED, we'll pay for it. Here's the bucket. Nobody's going to have to pay in that regard. People were saying, you know, I really want to go to our local community college, but I can't really afford it, even though the prices were extremely reduced. Okay, let's put $50,000 up for anybody who lives in public housing to be able to have access to this pot of money to go and, and get take classes at PVCC, our local community college. Uh, people were saying, you know, well, Wes, public housing has been talked about since 1990, literally. I was born in 1986. So I was, I was serving on the housing authority board at the time as the council rep, and it just seemed as if what we really needed was some resources to get it kicked off. So I was like, okay, $2.5 million, let's do $500,000 over five years, and that can help us get the ball rolling in terms of public housing redevelopment. At the time, I was also serving as the, the chair of the 100 Black Men, our local 100 Black Men chapter, the chairman of our uh, Charlottesville Alliance for Black Male Achievement, 
the chair of our President Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative, running a nonprofit, a boxing club. One person can't do all of those things and serve on council. We need a full time dedicated position for such. All right. So let's write in here a youth opportunity coordinator who works specifically for black youth achievement. And then there were some other things. I play in, the, in our local summer league, our summer basketball league. The courts were absolutely horrendous. You look at other parks around the city, they were beautified tenfold to what Tonsville Park was. And this is a place where you have maybe five, 600 black folk come every Sunday to play in the league. Okay, let's put up $250,000 to renovate Tonsville Park, get new courts, get a spray park. Let's make it a place where people actually want to come. So all of those things, again, like that went into the equity package, came from me spending time in the community, knowing people, having a pulse of what was needed and saying, okay, well, if people are saying that these statues are only symbolic, I know you're not going to vote against this, this, these substantive measures. Now, if you do choose to be against both of those, then yeah, I am going to look at you a little sideways because you're, you're telling me that you don't want just symbols, you want substantive, well, here's your substance. And the, and the equity package passed unanimously 5-0, and we've seen it be adopted in other cities across the, or variations of it rather adopted in other cities across the country. And then eventually we did get the vote to, to have the statues removed too. So, you know, I think that it's always a tactic. Whenever you're looking for something bold, you need to be able to address both symbolic because that pulls on the heartstrings, but then you also need to have those substantive measures, which will make people uh, tap into their logical perspective and then you get things through. It's just political theater to a certain extent. And was there a moment that you knew it was going to happen? You were going to have the votes and it was this is going to be a reality. Yeah. So <laughs> the night of the vote for the city council for the, the statue removal, told I'm not, told everybody to come out. If y'all with me, I need you to pull up to the council meeting. Everybody needs to be there. So meetings packed. It's the night of the statue vote. Some of my colleagues are like, we will not be intimidated. I'm not voting for it. I don't care. But I knew on the docket, we also had to vote for the equity package. So my colleague, um, Bob Fenwick, said, it, so it was five of us on the council. My colleague, Kristen Sakos, who helped me um, edit the equity package, as well as who was really the first council to start talking about statue removal, getting, getting away, distancing ourselves from the Confederacy and so forth. So we knew she and I were two votes. The mayor and another counselor, Mike Signer and, and Kathy Galvin, they were staunch and, and dug in their heels that they were not voting for statue removal. And then the wild card was Bob Fenwick, who actually beat me in the city, beat me in the city council election, my first council election in 2013 by four votes. He would call himself uh, the <laughs> he would call himself kind of the old wise statesman, and he would call me the maverick. And uh, you never know a Bob where he where he was lying on things, where he would land. He went to every Blue Ribbon Commission meeting that we had that was commissioned to talk about these statues. I didn't know if he was going to vote for it or not, but he said to me when I presented to the council the, stat, the equity package in meetings prior to the council meeting, he says, I really love this. I don't think that anyone else is going to vote for it, though. And I'm going to hold my statue vote until you get what you need for the equity package. But I had already knew that the others were going to vote for the equity package. So when we had the, the council meeting and we called the statue vote first, it was 2-2-1, 2-4-2 against and Bob abstained, and the crowd went crazy. And then we had the equity package vote right afterwards, and it was accepted and voted on 5-0. I knew it was good. And then uh, the next day, Bob called his press conference, and he said he would vote for the statues to be removed. The rest is history. So, Dr. Bellamy, you, 
I want to talk a little bit more about you and your path to leadership because you're, at some point you made a choice to run for office. You could have brought your passion, your policy insights, you know, your, your community connectivity to any number of things. When mm-hmm. did you actually decide to run for office and how did you know that you needed to do it? Yeah, so uh, as I alluded to, I had a boxing club. I never forget we had a, we got we were receiving an award from Hype for uh, some of our community service stuff at the city council meeting at a city council meeting, and we went there. I told the boxers, uh, you know, it was probably about nine up. It was eight or nine up who came with us. I told them, you guys, you be good, don't embarrass us. I'll take you out of McDonald's afterwards. So they're really excited because they know Dr. You know, West never lets them get McDonald's. Coach West never lets you get McDonald's. Um, and I remember we went up, got the award, came back and sat down with the McDonald's and a nine-year-old, DeCorey. And DeCorey asked me, Coach West, can I ask you a question? And I don't want you to get mad. I don't want you to get upset. And I said, okay, what's, what's going on? And he said, um, why isn't there anyone who looks like us at that meeting? And it just shocked me. And I said, well, you know, there's one guy, Mr. Jones, and our city manager at the time was black, uh, Maurice Jones. And he said, no, the people who put the X's in the boxes, meaning the people who actually took votes. And it hit me at that time. I mean, we always talk about in our club, if you see a problem or you see an issue, don't complain or, or ask for someone else to do it. You be the change. And it was really at that moment. I had I had been thinking about it and people have been asking me and I was saying, oh, no, you know, I'm running this club. I'm running the boxing club. I'm finishing up my master's. It's not something that I'm really interested in right now, but it was at that time, and that was in 2013, and I said, um, I'm tired of asking these counselors and these community folks to come in the community and do certain things or to do stuff for us. I don't need to ask them to do anything. I can be the decision maker. So I just decided to run for office. And my first campaign, I mean, we tied at the polls and we wound up losing my four votes, but it was an incredibly, incredibly, it's been a, a very powerful learning experience. Uh, Humility in terms of losing. I needed some humble pie. Uh, I need probably needed the whole pie more than the slice. Um, but also learning what you don't know and, and understanding that sometimes a loss is actually a win because it shields you from some things. You know, mind you, if all those you know tweets from at that time, I think I was 24, so I was maybe two years removed from all those tweets, opposed to you know seven, eight years removed from them when they came out when I won my election a few years later and people were also able to see the full growth or more growth in that regards right and then not only just that like i knew how to handle things in a much better fashion as i was a little bit older than i was at at 23 or 24 when i ran the first time so again like life like i'm a firm believer of faith and, and i really believe that god he does everything for a reason and when it's your time it's going to be your time mm-hmm. You know, the, in the audience for this podcast is a young woman who is like you. She's a former teacher, probably mm-hmm. in the classroom today, and she wants to do what you've done. She wants to run for office, serve her community, make it better, get things done. And she's thinking, man, I, I, I know what I would do, but I don't want to raise the money mm-hmm. to run for office. What's your advice to her? Mm, neither did I. I hated asking for money. But here's what I told myself for the kids in this community, I will do anything. I don't care what it is. So if that means that I have to swallow my pride and ask for money, I just started telling myself that I'm not doing it for me. 
And am I going to be so boastful and prideful to not ask for something? So if I don't ask and I don't get in this position and then I can't help the people who I say I'm truly doing this for. So are they worth me making a sacrifice of my pride and doing something that may be outside of my comfort zone to help them out? And for them, the answer was always yes. For my neighborhoods, for my communities, the answer was always yes. And I make this joke all the time, like I will do whatever it takes to make sure y'all are okay. That's what I feel like God placed me here to do. So even if it means being uncomfortable in certain situations, I'm just gonna do it because the long-term impact will be beneficial for you all, which in turn means that I did what I was supposed to do. What does it mean to be an equity leader today? Mm, I think it has a, a wide variety of different meanings for different people. I think that it is a term, I remember when we first started talking about it in 2016, 2017, people were like, equity? No, you mean equality. I'm like, no, we mean equity. What's that? And we used to have to break it down. Now you see all these posters and people are talking about it nonstop. I think um, today, though, there are a lot of ways in which we are looking to, to push equitable policies, practices, and you need equity leaders on several different fronts, whether that's on the LGBTQ whether that's being an equitable leader in terms of pushing policy um, for underserved neighborhoods, whether that means you're pushing equity on the job workplace. I think that in the schools, I mean, there, there are so different many ways in which we have to push for equity. And I think it's such a broad uh, term that applies to so many different topics and lanes that we have to have several people who are focused on it and intentional in terms of bringing forth equity in everything in which they do. And I think anybody can be an equity leader. You don't have to be an individual with 15,000 followers and a verified check or whatever. You can be a person that just says, hey, on your job, this isn't going right. And I think that this needs to happen, not just for equality, but again, to bring forth equity so that everybody has what they need to be successful. Thank you for that. Dr. Bellamy, I want to do some short answer questions and then we'll move into our lightning round. So okay. if you could snap your fingers to make one change for kids and community today, what would that one change be? Hmm. One change to kids in the community today? <sighs> Honestly, I would say it would be instilling a, some kind of mandatory mental health training or um, access for them all so they can build inner self-confidence. I think that's the biggest thing that I see with young folks today. A lot of the, the byproducts that we see in terms of the negative things that transpire are because kids lack confidence. Mm -hmm. it, meant, it, it literally has made the entire difference in my world being told at five and six that I'm special, that I was special. I believed it. So you couldn't tell me at 12, 13, 14, it may have came off as arrogance, but at 16, 17, 18 years old, that I wasn't special. Someone told me that when I was six, I believed it. I knew I'm special. I'm different. I'm not like everyone else. I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I can't make those uh, same mistakes as everyone else. I can't make that decision. And not saying that I did it. I did a lot of hectic stuff. My grandmother would always say that I was the worst child that she's ever met in her life. That's a running joke on both sides of my family. She, she used to say before she passed, I don't know how you turned out like this, prayer words. But I always knew that, you know, I was special. So that came from, again, the, the confidence that was instilled within me. 
And I think that there is a need for mental health um, assistance with, with all of our, with a lot of our young folks. Mm. Sorry, that was a long answer. Not at all. What is the one tool or skill or resource, maybe a life-changing book or a podcast that you just mm -hmm. wish every leader in America would know about and use? Yeah, reading for sure would be the skill. Uh, one book. Mm, there's two books. Up from Slavery by Booker T. Washington, because that book really showed me the just the perseverance of there's literally nothing that can stop you if you want to do something. And then secondly, um, The Pursuit of Happiness, the movie that Will Smith played in, but the actual book about Chris Gardner, because it showed me that literally, it doesn't matter the circumstance or the situation, we have an obligation and a duty to push for, to make the situation better. That's it. That book, by the way, on a personal level, I read it in 2001. I was mm -hmm. in law school at the time in Rochester, New York. Mm -hmm. I I cried in a way that I had not ever cried as a man before. It's a tremendous oh, yeah. book. You know, if oh, you yeah. say the, the book is better than the movie, that, mm -hmm. that made that statement true for me. So Yeah, for yeah, for sure. What's I had a similar experience. I cried reading that book as well. Just it's, it's you can do it. Powerful. You can we can do it. Yes, it's so powerful. What is a piece of advice you would give to your 23-year-old self? Mm. Um, stop tweeting. <laughs> no, I would, uh, 23 year old self, I would say, Wes, you do not know everything about everything. And, um, it's probably, it's, it's like, let's listen a little bit. You have a lot of skills. You have a lot of talent. You have a lot of ambition. You mean well, you want to do well, but you don't know everything. So let's slow down. Probably wouldn't even tell myself to slow down. I would just say, you don't know everything about everything, so let's listen a little bit. For our lightning round, when you feel overwhelmed or lost, what helps you refocus? Oh, jogging. Yeah. And what's one thing about the next generation of leaders that excites you for the future? Their boldness. Absolutely unafraid, and they have an, an, a, a unique ability to mobilize via social media. And they're very smart. Very smart. Very research-oriented, well-read. Um, and they're just really not up for the BS. Mm. And who's a hero that inspired your work today? Mm, a hero um, from my wife. She's uh, one of the strongest people that I know. I would say uh, my aunt, Delphine, and then probably um, a hero. I've been having a lot of conversations with, uh, with Puff Daddy lately, P. Diddy, P. Diddy lately. Um, He's really helped me just understand a lot of things. What's what's the next five years going to hold? Um, it's going to be hectic, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, I've been praying a lot about you know what the next phase looks like. I think it's been revealed and shown to me. I think my next task is to uh, mobilize and organize Black folk across the country for us to build our political power. And um, that will be through what we're calling our Black Party, which is um, not necessarily a third party. It's not a Democrat or a Republican party, but it is something or a vehicle and a platform for Black folk, no matter what your political affiliation is, no matter what your political ideology is, for us to have a political home, for us to train ourselves, for us to take care of ourselves, for us to make the, the changes within our own communities. And I think that is uh, where my talents will be in the immediate 
and, and then in addition to that, uh, continuing to love on my students, my scholars at Virginia State University and trying to be the best father and husband that I can be. I have appreciated and enjoyed this conversation so much. I can't even tell you. Thank you for your generosity of time and insights and just uh, for leading the way that you do. Thank you. I appreciate you all having me. Where can people find you online? You can hit me up on Instagram. Um, I'm always on there at Dr. West Bellamy. I think it's at Dr. West Bellamy. So at Dr. West Bellamy on Twitter, uh, at Dr. West Bellamy, Facebook, West Bellamy. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty easy to get to, which is a gift and a curse, my wife says, but hit me up. I'll hit you back. And that was Dr. Wes Bellamy and Jason Lorenz at the leaders table. What did you think, Taylor? Something that really stood out to me was the importance of community for him. Everywhere he goes, it seems like communities are at the center of his work. From the boxing club to all the organizations, and even online with Twitter, he's like a community whisperer. He's a true millennial. I found it super interesting how he reflected on his past mistakes and took that as an opportunity to engage with his community and show his growth as a leader. It's very humanizing, as was his quote about there being power in being young and sometimes not knowing any better. It's cool to hear that he's consistently able to take things that seem like disadvantages and turn them into advantages. So much great stuff here. If anyone out there would like a transcript from this interview, you can head over to educationalequity.org slash leaders table and find it in the show notes. We'll also be posting several of Dr. West Bellamy's recommendations, his social media links, and so much more. Okay, we're about to take a quick break, but please stick around because we are about to hear from you on all the awesome things you as Lee members are doing in your own communities. Hello everyone, my name is Isabel Houston and I manage a brand new program here at Lee called the Volunteer Educational Equity Reserves, but we also call it VEER for short. VEER connects Lee members to projects with organizations across the country that need immediate support so that they can achieve their goals of impact for students and families. The projects are self-directed with minimal supervision and are designed to be completed in your spare time. VEER is the perfect way to grow your skills and professional experience because you pick the hours and you get to choose the projects you work on. Each project has its own topic and timelines, so there's bound to be something that fits in your life. If joining the Volunteer Educational Equity Reserves seems like it might be a great way for you to start making a difference, then please head over to educationalequity.org V-E-E-R and sign in with your member ID so that you can see the projects available. If you don't see something that suits your interests, be sure to check back later because we are constantly updating with new opportunities. Once again, Veer's website is educationalequity.org slash Veer. Remember, when it comes to educational equity, this is an all hands on deck moment and now is the time to serve with Veer. Hey there, listeners. Thanks so much for sticking around. 
For this episode's Member in Action segment, we talked with a Lee member with experience teaching all over the world and who is now pivoting to start a new unexpected adventure a bit closer to home. My name is Austin Higgins and I am from Chicago. I've lived a bunch of different places, but that's where I consider home. Uh, I was a 2007 core member in New York and with Teach for America. After spending almost 10 years in U.S. classrooms as a teacher in Harlem, the Bronx, Indiana, and Chicago, Austin decided she was up for a new two-year adventure and joined the Peace Corps in order to have a go at living somewhere entirely new. The Rwandan government has a program with Peace Corps in order to help just uh, do a lot of capacity building around what is student-centered education, what does assessment look like, what does engagement look like, um, which is training that I'd had in, in the U.S. In Rwanda, Austin encountered a learning environment that was very different from the United States. With her local co-teachers, she taught in small classrooms that would often have limited resources, extremely large class sizes, sometimes upwards of 70 students, and that would sometimes take place in non-traditional learning environments. It's a beautiful country. The climate is just perfect, uh, although it does rain a lot, right? But you could be holding class outdoors regularly. And most schools in Rwanda are set up in a um, courtyard style, right? So there's a big grassy space in the middle and they have um, outdoor chalkboard, like on the, on the brick. Then only six months into her two-year Peace Corps assignment, the COVID-19 pandemic broke out and she had to return back home to the United States and starting some coaching to figure out the big question of what's next. Um, so I got plugged into Lee. Um, I talked to, you know, our regional folks about what's going on. Um, and you quickly got uh, linked up with a career seminar, right, for six weeks. And, you know, I hadn't touched my resume. Um, and I certainly hadn't written a cover letter in a really long time. After months of online networking and interviews, Austin was able to use the connections and supports through Lee, specifically Lee's career coaching program, to pair up with several other educational organizations in Chicago and landed a full-time position working for the federal government in Washington, DC. It's my intention to take a decade plus of educational equity in urban ed in the U.S. and rural education opportunity in Rwanda and transition with that to a federal position in D.C. Continue that advocacy work there. That was Lee member Austin Higgins from Chicago and soon to be Washington, D.C. If you want to find out more about her or Lee's career coaching program, please check out the episode's show notes at educationalequity.org slash leaders table. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please give us a review. You can also write to us at leaders table at educationalequity.org. Our show is hosted by Jason Lorenz, Taylor Stewart, and myself, Cindy Centeno. The episode is edited by Nolan Peters and produced by Graham Forden. I'm Cindy, and thanks for pulling up a seat at the leader's table. Be well, stay safe, and until next time. Bye.